Hello and welcome to the Resilience by Design podcast. The Resilience by Design Lab at Royal Roads University, led by Dr. Robin Cox, aims to advance leadership in disaster risk reduction and climate action. Royal Roads University and the RBD Lab sit on the unceded territories of the Kosapsim and Lekwungen ancestors and families. At the Resilience by Design Lab, we work alongside youth and adults as changemakers and leaders to imagine new possibilities for climate action. This podcast is one of many ways to tell the stories of the inspiring changemakers and communities that we work with. My name is Ozzy Lang, and I have the pleasure of hearing and sharing these stories with you. On this episode, I'm joined by Tamsin Lyle the Principal Engineer at Ebb Water Consulting. Tamsin is a well-known thought leader on flood management in Canada. Tamsin has joined me on the podcast to discuss the impact of climate change on flood risk across Canada. Thank you so much, Tamsin, for um, joining me on the podcast. I'm hoping that you could tell us a little bit about what you do and kind of the background of how you got there. Sure. So my name is Tamsin Lyle. I am an engineer and planner wannabe. I'm a principal um, engineer at Ebwater Consulting, which is a small firm here in Vancouver, which is wholly dedicated to floods and natural hazards. And we are, I think, unique um, in the country in that we work across uh, disciplines. So we have a focus on high quality technical work, but also really trying to understand and support communities to figure out what that technical work means in terms of policy and planning and implementation to actually reduce risk. And what drew you to the work? Why are you passionate about flood mitigation and monitoring? Fun question. So yeah, I guess I really started with a love for rivers, which I've had since I was very little, playing who sticks on the creek and throwing things into the river and watching what happened. And then as I grew up getting into canoes and kayaks and whipping through the white water across all spots in Canada and really exploring and understanding and sort of not sort of innately understanding how rivers work in all parts of the country and seeing how beautiful um, and amazing they are. And then sort of through that really expanded into wanting to understand how rivers can also be a bit angry at times and, and impact people. And so when I was working on my master's thesis back a long time ago, I really started delving into the policy and planning related to flood uh, mitigation, just to, to try and understand how we can do things a bit better, because clearly we're not doing it great right now. Amazing. I love how this sparked out of just a love for the rivers. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, they're just so much fun. And when you actually sit there and stare at them for hours, they're just they're mesmerizing and you can watch all of those flow patterns and and then you can start looking into the landscape and the floodplains and understanding where the water might go and see all of the natural shapes and forms that tell you stories about where the water has been in the past that sort of are really interesting and inspiring and also really useful information to understand maybe I shouldn't put my house in that spot where I can see the curved tree where clearly the the river had been before. You're observing so much more and such a keen sense for that. It, it reminds me of Indigenous ways of knowing and really learning from the land. Absolutely. I think one of the most fascinating and challenging, but also um, exciting projects that 
I've been working on the last uh, decade or so is with the Okanagan Nation Alliance and the Silk people and all of the best practices that we use now in Western science, like the, what we call the 10 golden rules for flood management, are essentially their oral histories and their stories and the way that they live with the land. And they match up almost perfectly. Understanding the land, I think, is really important and something that we are a little challenged to do, I think, just given the sort of the available resources and the people we can talk to and also recognizing that a lot of the work in flood mitigation in Canada and around the world, in the Western world anyways, is done by engineers. And I'm an engineer, so I can say this, but they're not necessarily the kind of folks who like spending time sitting at the river or sitting with Indigenous elders and knowledge keepers and just listening for a day. And so there's there's a bit of a disconnect there, I think, in terms of who's doing the work and their skill set, which is, you know, awesome when it comes to computer modeling or designing riprap or all of these things that you're trained to do as an engineer, but it doesn't really reflect what I think we need to be doing, which is that much muckier space of spending time on the land and spending a lot of time listening to people and, and having conversations and some of the things that uh, engineers are unfortunately not generally trained to do. Very interesting. Um, and you said that Ebwater is doing things differently, looking at that technical side. And like you said, learning from the land, how does that impact the work that you're doing in these communities? And what work are you seeing that's kind of inspiring you in these communities? Other people are absolutely doing this too. We're not uh, the only folks in the space. <laughs> There's lots of smart folks out there doing the right thing, absolutely. But yeah, I do like to think that we are lucky in that we have some amazing clients who let us explore into the space to do things a little bit differently. And so, for example, some of the big urban areas that we've been working with, like the city of Vancouver, for example, we really got an opportunity to explore using what we call a risk-based approach to flood management. So not just focusing on trying to stop the water, but really thinking about all of the other things that really matter. So it's not so much the water is there, but the water is interacting negatively with things that we care about. So allowing us to really focus not so much on big engineered solutions like dikes or seawalls or dams or whatever we have um, to stop the water, but thinking about, hey, how can we change our land use? How can we change the exposed elements that are in the way of the water? Or secondly, how can we change our built environment so that we can you know, get wet every so often or change our built environment so that we're, you know, a little bit higher to not get wet. So I think that's one thing that we've been able to do with sort of clients that are willing to push the boundaries. More recently, it's doing a lot of work with First Nations and learning just enormous amount of information from them to try and weave together both that traditional knowledge information as well as Western science to sort of build a much fuller picture. If we look at Western science, data sets and methods in British Columbia, at best we have 100 years of data. And the bottom end of that is pretty spotty, probably have 50 or 60 years of good data. Whereas if we listen to oral histories and stories and get the opportunity to learn from knowledge keepers, we can extend that record way back to really understand what is the natural and sort of healthy state of this environment that then can support us to understand what might happen in the future and what we can do to adapt. I think the third thing that we've been able to do with, again, clients that were willing to let us to, to sort of be on the bleeding edge of things, for example, the District of Tofino and the Regional District of Kootenai Boundary have allowed us to also try and do a bit of a parallel process in terms of doing the very quantitative technical 
work, as well as recognizing all of the qualitative and messy work that needs to be done to truly understand what is impacted in a flood, and then present that on, an, on a level playing field with the quantitative data. So not assure, assuming that because we can calculate it, it's more important, but recognizing that all the stuff we can't calculate is equally important and should be used to frame decisions. That's wonderful. Not only does it bring more value and, and you can show risks at a deeper level, but it also engages the community in a deeper way. I lived in Calgary during the 2013 flood, and there was this sense and this feeling of, I don't even know this was coming and I don't know what to do. So I, I have no control over anything. Absolutely. We start every process with like the Sendai priority number one in our minds, which is understanding risk, right? So that first part is really, we call it setting the stage. And so we're just going into these communities and really just letting them know there is a hazard here. And this is probably what it's going to mean to your community. What can you tell us about it if you've been affected by a flood? But through that, we've really sort of increased the level of understanding in those communities. It might just be with the stakeholders or with the council and staff, city staff, or it might be with the public, depending on the appetite of the region or what they're working on. But yeah, absolutely, it's an opportunity to let everybody know that this is the problem and also that there are things that every single person can do to, to mitigate that risk to their communities or to themselves. There's so many co-benefits associated with taking a deeper approach to it rather than assuming it's a very linear engineered process that you can just go, here's our problem, here's our solution, here's how much it's going to cost, here's your design. We're in that very messy, messy space of big ball of yarn, I imagine it, like I'm really pulling at parts of it and making it even messier. In an interview you gave in 2017, you talked about how flood mitigation is left up to these municipalities to take care of, and there's not really the broad spectrum of looking at all of BC. And in that 2017 interview, you talked about how um, these communities are at risk of flooding and there needs to be a broader response from um, municipalities and governments. And how is that looking now that we're in 2021? Yeah, so maybe marginal improvement on that, at least at least a recognition that this is a real, real problem. I mean, Canada was a real leader in this space in the 70s and the 80s, and then sort of slowly the money started disappearing from the federal and then the provincial, and then it sort of gets shunt, shunted down. And in the sort of pivotal or turning point in British Columbia was around 2003, 2004, when the, the funding and also the expertise and the responsibility and authority for flood mitigation was transferred from the province down to local governments with very minimal actual support or resources or anything. And so all of a sudden, local governments were in charge of their hazards, their natural hazards, and they weren't well placed to do so. I would argue that flood mitigation and hydraulics and hydrology and all of this, it's a very specialist area. You wouldn't have a, a general practitioner do your heart surgery. So why would you have a civil engineer do your flood mitigation plan. My point is that these people don't exist at local government. And in fact, they didn't really exist in, in consulting or in the private sector either because there had been no funding for this. So we've got this scenario now where we have all of these local governments with the responsibility and authority to actually manage this without the capacity to do so, without the expertise to do so. And then thirdly, with a bunch of perverse incentives, the municipal and local governments get their most of their revenue from property taxes. So developing everywhere is what drives a lot of 
decisions and then developing in floodplains. That's what they want to do because they need to do it to get the, the property taxes to be able to pay for everything. And so then we have a bit of a, a, a scenario where they are making poor choices in the short term, but that will have long term implications. And then ultimately, usually it is the provincial or federal governments that pick up the tab when there is an event that occurs in terms of disaster response and recovery and disaster financial assistance. It's a very imbalanced scenario that we're currently dealing with, and I think it's been well recognized. And there has been some work recently funded by the province and conducted by the Fraser Basin Council, as well as some internal work that's being done um, at the province to sort of try and tease out all of the problems that we currently have with the model that we have. I would say that the province, they're very aware of this as an issue now, whereas perhaps they weren't five or six years ago, only a few people were. And they are making slow but really important steps to try and address this in the long term. I want to come to the BC climate adaptation strategy. But before we do that, I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit about how floods are related to climate change. Sure. So floods have always occurred. (laughs) So that's, I mean, it's their super important part of our natural sort of physical function. I'm here um, in Musqueam, Slavitus and Squamish Nation lands in Vancouver. And just to the south of me, the Fraser River, the mighty Fraser um, is what has created all of that, all of the lower mainland, all of the valley, like that, that valley would not have existed without the Fraser flooding every so often and depositing the sediment. So we know that floods are super important and they've always been around. However, we've got ourselves in a bit of a pickle with climate change. The main results of climate change are rising sea levels because of expanding water and then sort of more what I call more angry weather basically and so on the rising sea level front um, that has a huge impact to British Columbia obviously because we have so much coastline and if you think just about the sort of lower half of the province where the majority of the people live we have a lot of people and infrastructure nationally significant infrastructure that's on the shoreline that will be affected by sea level rise for example in the city of Vancouver the sort of very unlikely extreme event that might occur today is going to be our high tide line by around 2080 2100 depending on which projections you look at and what data you're looking at. These are places that are currently home to many people and businesses and important infrastructure that will be wet. That's what climate change is doing on the coast. And then additionally, we have the scenario of sort of more precipitation and higher temperatures that are creating this angrier weather. And so it's it's a little unclear right now in terms of the the science. Some of the smaller coastal systems are almost certainly going to be worse off in terms of the extreme events that we're going to see because we're going to have those big winter events, those atmospheric river events, for example, that we hear about and, you know, the partial cause of the Calgary event. So that's when we have, you know, the high level atmospheric rain events come in and they stall and they drop a lot of water over a short period of time. So we're anticipating more of those in future. So that's going to affect some watersheds. So we're going to have much more extreme events. So really big, big events that we haven't seen historically. We have other watershed systems that are what we call nival regimes in British Columbia, which means that they are snowmelt driven. So something like the Fraser River. So traditionally we get the highest flows in the spring because the snow is melting really rapidly or it's raining on the snow and it's coming down. And so in terms of how that looks with climate change, it's a bit unclear um, because we're probably gonna have less snowpack. So there'll be less stored water up in the watersheds. However, we might end up with rapid melts. I don't know, heat domes, you've heard about those now. Those kind of things can melt off the water really fast, or we might have a lot of rainstorms on top of the snow, but it's a little unclear and much more sort of messier space in terms of what that looks like. 
But I think across the board, what we can assume um, is that we're going to see more frequent small events occurring. And these are like what we call nuisance events or these sort of mid-range events that are generally not what it's designed for. And I think this is one of our other challenges is that traditionally we use this sort of design standard to say we will, we will design to the 0.5% annual exceeding probability. So that's an event that has 0.5% chance of occurring in any given year. And we don't think about any of the other events. And so we're making a singular decision, but on a very sort of complex sort of long problem. And so we are probably going to see more of these sort of frequent events that are in that lower range. If your house is getting flooded with six inches of water every single year, that's going to be a problem to you and probably more of a concern the chance that it gets, you know, two or three meters of water once over the course of the lifespan of that house. And so that's what we need to start thinking about, I think, is really understanding that it's, it's the cumulative impacts of all of these events that matter. And so that's where we get back to that risk-based approach of thinking is, is not just thinking about a single hazard and trying to stop that water, thinking about all the things that matter around it, like that are impacted, but also thinking about the full range of flood events. And that's where I think climate change is going to be a catalyst to make us think differently about this because we are anticipating lots of these smaller events. That makes a lot of sense. And that brings me back to the BC climate adaptation strategy. I was surprised that their risk level for floods is not higher. Yes. So as an evangelist for floods, I would agree with you. And the main, I mean, I think it really comes down to their, the resources to do that report and the methodology that they chose to apply, which is what we call the single scenario approach. So they just chose one area in BC to look at. And they chose one event to look at. So instead of thinking about all the cumulative impact of all of those smaller things, they just looked at that one fairly severe event, but then multiplied it by a very small likelihood to get to risk. And so by taking that scenario approach, they're missing all of this piece. And then the second piece, of course, is that they were only able to look at one area spatially in BC. So they looked at the Fraser, for example, which has that very uh, confused understanding of what climate change will mean because of snowpack and all of those variables. So it's maybe not such a, you know, a, a rapid sort of increase in the profile of the hazard on the Fraser as it might be if you looked at coastal areas or if you looked at smaller creek systems or river systems. If you think about different hazards, they have a different sort of spatial profile. So we look at something like flood and it affects somewhere in BC absolutely every single year. If you look at the record back to when record keeping started, there's been a flood that affected a community somewhere in BC every single year because we're such a big, big province and there's so much diversity. Whereas other hazards are only going to affect one part of the province. If you take into account scale plus all the likelihoods plus time, I think you would probably find that flood was a higher risk than it is currently marked at. But of course, there are a lot of priorities going on. That's the other thing, the potential for triggered or concurrent hazards and how they all interact with each other, both on the hazard side and the risk side, as well as the adaptation and resilience side. So for example, wildfire, we know that wildfire makes the likelihood and severity of flooding greater because you're stripping the land of all of the natural features that would historically have absorbed that water as it comes down. Um, and then if you get hot enough fires, you actually get what we call hydrophobic soils. So the soils kind of burn to the point where they become hydrophobic. So imagine dropping a bit of water onto a piece of plastic and it running off. 
So it's not even going to penetrate into the soil at all. It'll just run off really, really fast. And so with all of these fires in these watersheds currently that we're seeing today, we can expect that next year we're going to see more flooding associated with that. And I think we've already seen that in the in our recent past in BC. So we had 2017 and 2018, which were fire flood fire in a row in terms of really large events that covered off everybody. And there isn't a lot of attribution work that has been done, of course, because there's not a lot of money and space, but I think we can at least anecdotally connect some of the increased flooding events that occurred in 2017, especially in the Caribou area in 2018 with the fires that occurred in the previous year. Wow, I'd never think of that. Obviously, I don't know that much about wildfires or floods, but that idea that wildfires stacked on top of floods, the risk of all those pieces is just like, it's, it's yeah, enormous. It's, it's enormous. It doesn't help you sleep at night for sure. And then you can add in landslides, debris flows, all of these things are all like, they're all on a spectrum, right? And they are all connected. So I think we have to do a better job of not working in our hazard silos. But we need to start connecting with each other better on the on the science side of the hazard. And then more importantly, on the adaptation side as well, because I think we're in a scenario now where we're going to start having maladaptations. And you'll see this, for example, all over the coast in the U.S. Buildings are up on stilts so that water can flow through, during, especially during large coastal events. And there's examples in B.C. of buildings that have been built like this to get their undersides, underbellies up above the flood construction level. But right away, putting a building on stilts has stiffness issues when it relates to earthquakes. So if you're in a hazard zone, especially in a tsunami zone, where you're going to have an earthquake, followed by you're going to tip your buildings over that you've designed for one hazard without considering the other hazard. So I think that's, again, something we need to do better at is working together on the hazard side to avoid maladaptation, but also to find all of those things that are super easy, quick wins for all hazards, especially related to social resilience. So if we have good systems in place to make sure that our communities function and we're all looking after each other. That's going to help us for heat, for earthquakes, for floods, for fire. And that's where I think there's a lot of work to be done. And you said it doesn't, doesn't help you sleep at night when you think about these risks and they're stacking on top of each other. And I think that it's important when we're thinking about this, because yeah, it is it's daunting and it can be defeatist almost when you're thinking about how big these risks are. I'd love to hear what inspires you and what you're seeing in communities and with your work about the positives kind of solutions and the, the adaptation that is happening in communities that is helping you sleep better at least. Right. <laughs> right. So I try and take my own advice on this. And I think it's really about not just focusing on the negative, but always recognizing that there is some kind of solution. There's a lot of things that we can do on the mitigation side as individuals. Um, so for example, on flood, and I haven't, we haven't really got into this, I often use what we call the risk triangle to explain things to stakeholders or public. And so this is something that the Global Facility of Disaster for Disaster Risk Reduction uses where triangle area inside the triangle is the risk and it's got three vertices, hazard, bad thing, could be flood, could be anything else, exposure, things that are in the way of the flood. So imagine that sort of in the 2D space on a map. And then vulnerabilities, susceptibility to flooding. So how damaged would your house be? How damaged would you be if you were hit by a, a flood? And so we have three levers to work on to reduce our risk. So if we want to reduce our risk to make our area of a triangle small, smaller, we just have to 
play with these. We can't really do much about the hazards. In fact, the hazards are actually getting worse for the most part because of climate change. There's limited things that we can do on that side, although there are certainly things we can do to hold, sort of hold that line. But in terms of exposure, there are certainly things that government can do in terms of land use planning. But on the vulnerability susceptibility side, there are certainly things that governments and private sector people can be doing, but also public can do. So on the flood front, there's a lot of things you can do to mitigate how much damage will be incurred when it floods. And so you can change your carpets and replace them with tile. One of my favorite simple things to do is actually when you're building a house is, is to flip your drywall so that the long edge is on the bottom so that when you're flooded, you're only replacing the bottom two feet of drywall rather than replacing your entire wall because it soaks up and becomes a huge health hazard in terms of mold. You can raise your electrical outlet. And then there's also really simple things you can do if you live in a flood hazard area, which is the first thing to do is figure out whether you live in a flood hazard area. Once you know that, have a plan in place to, to move things up really fast if you need to, buy light furniture so you can lift it up. I mean, so like there's all of these really, really tangible, easy, easy things to do that will have a huge return when it floods and will not have any kind of negative impact in the short term. In the UK, they've been doing this a lot for the last 10 or so years. So there's this great guideline called the UK Homeowner's Guide to Flood Resilience, which has all these little tips. And then there's a whole bunch of videos that people have uploaded on what they've done. So there's a bunch of usually elderly folks in beautiful little country cottages going around their home showing you what they've done. And some of the simple things like raising the electrical outlet off the bottom of the floor to the top are actually a huge benefit to them because they're not bending over to put their plug in anymore and so it's like it's 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 something that's beneficial anyway so why not just do it there's there's a lot of solutions that we're not currently applying consistently across Canada that are super easy for individuals to take on and we should be encouraging people to learn more about the fact that they're in a floodplain and all of the things that they and their neighbors could be doing to mitigate risk I think that that is the best way to end the the podcast it's just brings a little bit of things that somebody can do. Is there any other pieces that you want to add? Sure. Uh, yeah, I think the only thing I would like to, to highlight as well is the need to sort of going back to what we were talking about at the beginning in terms of understanding the land and trying to learn as much as we can from knowledge keepers because they basically got it right. And recognizing that the ecological values are huge also to manage hazards. So if you're just thinking about keeping the watershed healthy, it's going to help us take the edge off climate change in terms of how our hazard profiles are changing. So if we can return, like restore some of our upper watersheds, and then in our urban areas and in the valleys and floodplains, it's a lot of opportunity to allow rivers to do their own thing and sort of get out of the way of the river, create natural spaces, which have so many benefits, psychological benefits, recreational benefits, social well-being, all of these things that we don't tend to use in our decision processes because we like dollars and cents that we can calculate and not people's feelings. And so they just get ignored because we can't, we can't quantify them. There's a lot of options that are nature-based that we're not currently pursuing, but have huge benefits in terms of hazard reduction, huge benefits, and so therefore risk reduction, huge benefits and all of these intangibles. And then the bonus is that they're also good on the climate emissions side of things. Thank you so much for your time, Tamsin. You have such a depth of knowledge and such an intuition for how to work with communities and understand different knowledges and how that plays into the role. I hope that more experts 
And uh, people looking at climate impacts would think like you and, and go through this process like you're going through. Thank you all for listening. If you are interested in exploring the UK Homeowner's Guide or Ebb Water Consulting, links will be included in the podcast description. I hope each of you has a wonderful day.